Okay, so our text for this morning is the end of Matthew chapter 7. Uh, Josh didn't get all the way through the section that we had kind of broken this up into. That's totally okay. So we're skipping a little bit. Um, Aaron may end up coming back to that, but I'm not sure. So I will be starting in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 7, and we'll be going to the end of the chapter. So we'll be finishing out the Sermon on the Mount. So I've titled this sermon, Two Options, Your Choice. And I think the title will become a little bit more apparent as we get into this. So I'm going to start just by reading through all of this text. So starting in verse 13, this is Jesus speaking here. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. And now when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. So that is all of the text that we're going to be working through. So I want us to first focus on, you probably have this broken up into section headings, at least I do. So each of my points is following these section breaks. So we're going to start with my first point here in verses 13 and 14. So two paths is that first point in these first two verses. So look at it again with me. So these first two verses, Jesus outlines for us the two types of life that people live, the life of belief and the life of unbelief. He gives us two different examples here, gives us a negative example of the wide gate. He tells us that that gate is wide, that that way is easy, 
that many enter through it and that that way, that gate leads to eternal destruction. And then he gives us the positive example of the Christian life, the life of belief. And he tells us that that gate is narrow, that the way is hard or difficult, that few find that way, but that it leads to eternal life. So we see immediately, I think where you probably can understand where I'm going with this, there are two paths And we will see this repetition of two, this contrast repeated throughout all of these sections. So why does it say in the positive example, the only difference really between the words that are used in these two sections is find as opposed to enter. So we can see pretty easily the contrast between wide and narrow, between destruction and life, between easy and hard. Those are opposites. But we see when he says enter, the wide gate, many enter it. The narrow gate, few find it. Those are not necessarily opposites. So why does Jesus tell us that? Why does he say that few find the path of eternal life? Well, I think the reality is that God reveals to us the way of life. That is why it says find. We cannot find that path without God revealing it. Our fleshly sinful desires want to very easily enter into the wide gate. It's easy to come into the wide gate, but it takes an act of God revealing salvation, of revealing His will to find the narrow gate. So I'm going to read Psalm 1611 here. It's a pretty famous verse, I would think. And it tells us, You make known to me the path of life. So we see there again that God is revealing the path. And He says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So God is revealing that path to us, we cannot find it on our own. It has to be revealed. So I think the most obvious answer is that God has revealed that path through Scripture. He has revealed that way to us through reading the Bible. But we also know that Jesus is described as the Word made flesh. God has revealed that path ultimately through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself says in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and none come to the Father except through Me. So this narrow gate is Jesus. The narrow gate that we are supposed to find through God's revelation is Jesus Christ Himself. And that path leads to eternal life. But, We may be asking, how do we as believers assure ourselves that we are on this path of eternal life? How do we know that we're Christians? How do we know that we believe? Or how do we examine other people around us to know, potentially, at least with some degree of certainty, that they 
believe in Jesus, that they are Christian? How do we give ourselves that assurance? Well, I think Jesus tells us himself in the very next section. And here we see two fruits in verses 15 through 20. So Jesus tells us, beware of false prophets. That may seem a little bit unrelated to what we were just talking about. Well, what is a false prophet? Very simply, it is anyone who claims to speak the truths of God, but does not speak truth. They claim to be saying something that God has revealed to them, or they claim to be speaking on behalf of God, but they are not speaking truth. They are speaking lies. So Jesus is telling us, beware of these false prophets. Outwardly, they appear as innocent sheep, but inwardly, They are ravenous, hungry wolves that desire something other than God. They desire, whatever it may be, something of the world. They desire money or popularity or notoriety. They desire to be liked. But whatever they desire, it is something other than God Himself and something other than His Son, Jesus. If you remember earlier in this Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, Jesus Himself says that blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. These prophets, these false prophets, are the opposite of that Beatitude. They hunger and thirst after the world, so they are described as ravenous wolves. Now that may be some people you know in this day of cultural Christianity. Outwardly, they maybe do the right actions. They say the right things. But inwardly, they hunger after popularity. In our area of the country, it's pretty common to be in the church. It's the popular, maybe well-known thing to do. But inwardly, They do not hunger after God. That's not why they are in the church. They're here to make themselves look good or to meet new friends or to enjoy the music and the motivational speaking or the preaching. They're not here for God. So in verses 16 through 20, Jesus tells us how exactly we can test these prophets, how we can see if they're false. He says that we will know them by their fruits. Well, what does it mean to know them by their fruits? I think we understand for the most part this metaphor that Jesus is using. We know that fruit is your actions that flow out of your heart for God. They are the evidences of your Christian walk. But Jesus points out that good fruit can only come from a good tree and that bad fruit can only come from a bad tree. Then verse 19 gives us a glimpse of the eternal destiny, the destination of those bad trees. They will be cut down and thrown into the fire of hell. That should rightfully scare all of us. 
because we should be quick to examine ourselves, to examine our own hearts, to see if we are producing this good fruit. Because if we are not producing good fruit, we are not a good tree. And if we are not a good tree, then we are not in Christ. And if we are not in Christ, we are going to hell. But not even everyone who can display good fruit is a good tree. And Jesus shows us this in the third section. So we jump down to verse 21. And here we see two hearts. So we've seen two paths of life, two fruits, two evidences of our Christian walk. And now we see two hearts. So we're getting closer, I think, to the central matter of testing or examining our faith. Jesus says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who verbally professes that God is their Lord is actually a Christian. But, Jesus says, those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. But this may seem then that good fruit Doing God's will is our basis for right standing. But you would be incorrect in assuming that. Because we are not works-based Christians. We don't believe that you can earn your way into heaven. We know, hopefully all of you, that our right standing is only found through faith in Christ. So what does Jesus mean here? Since we believe in salvation by faith alone, why does Jesus say that we must do God's will and not simply verbally profess Him? Well, many say to Him in this section of the example He gives that they have this good fruit to display as evidence of their salvation. They say, look, Jesus... We have prophesied in your name. We have cast out demons. We've given money to the poor. We have donated our time to the church. We have been here every time the doors are open. Look at our evidence, God. Look at our good fruit. We can hand him a, a basket of apples or peaches or whatever fruit or plant that you would want to give him. Say, look, God, this is my evidence that I am yours. But Jesus says to these people, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Why does he say that? Well, according to the last section... A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. But the fruit is not simply the action itself. Because if it were the action itself, we would only be looking at the outside of the fruit. You could think of an orange, potentially. If you think of an orange, it has a peel on the outside. And with these people in this section, their orange peel looks perfect. Their actions are right and good, but the inside of the orange is rotted and filled with maggots and death. 
Jesus tells the Pharisees at one point in the Gospels that they are whitewashed tombs, that on the outside they look clean and perfect, but on the inside they stink of dead bodies and decay. So that is what Jesus is getting at here. It's not simply our works, but it is the heart and the motivation behind them. Because simply calling Jesus Lord doesn't mean very much. And simply casting out demons or prophesying doesn't mean anything. As Paul tells us in Corinthians, if we have not love, and by that he means love for God, we have nothing. So, our good works are not always evidence of conversion, but rather good works that flow out of a good heart that is inclined towards God. That way, our peel of our orange is healthy and the inside of the orange is healthy as well. <clears throat> Paul says in Romans to be not only hearers of the word, but doers only. To do these good works with a right heart and a right motivation. But, what is the foundation of this right heart towards God? How do we have a right heart? What does it mean to be inclined towards God? To love Him and your works flow out of that love? Well, as you probably can guess where I'm going, Jesus tells us Himself in the very next section where He gives us a parable to end the Sermon on the Mount of two different foundations. So we've gone through two paths, two fruits, two hearts, and now two foundations. And He gives us a parable of two people who are building houses one person builds their house on the rock, and another person builds their house on the sand. And, of course, a storm comes, and the house built on the sand is blown away and washed away. Now, I don't think that the Galilean builders were foolish enough to build a house on very obvious loose sand when there was a solid rock right next to them. So... I wanted to figure this out, and I did a little bit of background research, and it turns out that in the climate of Galilee, that the sand can get very hard during the summer. You know, we're in the desert, so it's really hot. The sun's beating down on this sand, and so it dries up all the water. So this sand can appear to be as hard as the rock. But a wise builder that knows this climate knows that when the rain comes, that sand will get wet and will loosen and wash away. And so they dig down beneath the surface of this sand to the rock beneath it. They avoid being surface level and being easy and building on this hard sand that in the end will be false and will wash away. And they dig down to the rock to have a steady and sure and solid foundation. 
The rock here is, of course, none other than Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus is the rock, is the foundation. If we view potentially the house in this parable as the center of our lives, in Jewish culture, the house and the home and the family was pretty much everything you did. You were always with your family. You were always in your house doing stuff around the house or on the farm. The home life was very important to them. So the house here in this parable is the center of our lives. It is everything we do, everything we are, everything we will be. And Jesus is telling us to build our life on the foundation of himself. To build our lives on him. Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross is our foundation for a right heart. It is the root of the good tree that will produce good fruit. And so then we end with Jesus speaking. Jesus is done. The Sermon on the Mount is finished. But then then Matthew adds two more verses to the end of this chapter before he transitions out of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, so when he finished all of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now why in the world would he end with that? I feel like it would be pretty dramatic to just end with, and great was the fall of it. That's usually where we stop reading the Sermon on the Mount. But I think it's important that Matthew adds these two verses at the end. Because I think it can seem apparent now why Matthew wrote all of the sections before this in this particular order. He starts off with these paths of life. He starts then into the fruit of that life and how we can test that we are on that path. Then he gets into our heart and our motivations behind the actions that we do. And then he goes into our foundation and how we can build our lives on the rock of Christ. He's getting down to the root and the heart of the matter. But then he adds these two verses. And they seem to not fit in place. But I think these last two verses are the most important of the entire Sermon on the Mount. And I want to prove this to you by asking a question. Why should we build our foundation on Jesus? What hope does He offer us? What can He give us that makes His foundation more steady and sure and solid than what the world has to offer us. I can go build my foundation on money and go into business and be a millionaire and do pretty well for myself for 80-so years. Whereas I know plenty of poor missionaries in the Middle East or Southeast Asia that are struggling to find food and shelter. 
And they scraped by for 80 years sharing the gospel. For 80 years, that foundation of money may seem a lot more sure than going and becoming a missionary. So why would those missionaries forsake everything for that? Why would Jesus be a firm enough foundation that we could trust in Him even when we don't have food or shelter or clothing for our entire lives? Well, I think the answer is given to us by Matthew. Jesus was teaching as one who had authority. What kind of authority is this? Where does He get this authority from? Well, who is Jesus? Peter tells us he's the son of the living God. He teaches as one who had authority, who being sent by the Father, he was God in human flesh. He was given authority by the Father, and more than that, as God, he had inherent divine authority. He was God himself walking among us. The scribes did not have that kind of authority. The scribes quoted each other and based their authority on who they could quote or how many Bible verses they could remember. They based their authority on their position as a priest or their age or how many books they had read. But Jesus speaks as authority because everything he says and does is authoritative because he is God. Now, what hope does that authority offer us? As God, he has the authority and the ability to be our sacrifice to die for our sins, and to satisfy the wrath of the Father. That is why we can build our foundation on Him. That is why we can trust that He is a firm and steady foundation. He was given power and authority and dominion and a kingdom. And He was also given the authority and the ability to bring us mercy and grace and salvation. So we can build on that foundation knowing that at the end of those 80 years, that money will burn away and will be gone forever. And when we stand before the throne of judgment, we can say and sing praise to God that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness. Let us pray.